If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to Exodus chapter 11. Um, we're going to look at the whole chapter. It's verses 1 to 10 today. And we see that, you know, uh, God has finally reached the final straw with the Egyptians and with Pharaoh. And this is really just the explanation of what's about to happen. It's, we'll see the story of the actual uh, 10th plague in the coming weeks, but... As we think about this, Heather Burke Cody blogs this. I was thrift shopping for dorm stuff. The cashier appeared to be one of the most unhappy, maddest people ever. I was six people deep in the line, and it seemed like she got more and more exasperated with each passing customer. She was especially incensed when one of my unmarked items needed a price check. But as she rang up my items, I felt a soul nudge. I tried to bargain with Jesus and told him that the extra little bit of cash in the backside of my wallet was not meant for her. It surely should not go to some it should certainly go to someone sweeter and kinder, more deserving, or at least appreciative, maybe. Not someone downright mean and angry, but God did not budge. The human heart is our very best compass. It rarely leads us astray. So I paid my bill and reluctantly found the backside of my wallet. I slipped her some cash as she handed me my receipt. She was caught off guard by the gesture. She gripped the folded bill with one hand and paused, then slid her mask down with the other hand. Her loud, stern voice got quiet, and she whispered a single word, Why? To which I responded two words back, Soul nudge. There was another pause, a brief reckoning of sorts. When she grabbed my hand and held on, I was the one caught off guard. <clears throat> Today's my 75th birthday, and ain't nobody called me. Not my sister, not none of my kids, none of these people here, nobody, nothing. I don't think I can remember ever being so sad. Ain't nobody even remembers it's my birthday. You know, this is the grace and mercy, right, of God coming out of the life of Heather as she's feeling this soul nudge from the Lord. And so I know in talking with family and friends who uh, will share with me <clears throat> their anger or frustration with how they were treated, I often encourage them to extend grace and mercy. Most of the time I tell them this, I just say, you don't know what that individual has gone through earlier in the day. You don't know what kind of unspoken conflicts they're dealing with, what unspoken illness or financial trouble they're going through, or what spiritual battle is weighing heavy on their hearts. And so I just say, extend grace and mercy because it could change their attitude. It could change their life. And so how many of us have run into nasty people? You don't have to raise your hand today. And have we extended mercy to them, or have we treated them the same way that they've treated us? Well, as we prepare for the final plague, we see the grace and mercy of God on display in these verses. Pharaoh continued to live in rebellion against God and his commands. He will suffer the consequences of that behavior, and yet God will extend mercy and grace in the midst of his judgment of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And so, as Moses is writing this account in the book of Exodus, he wants us to understand our big idea today. And that's even in the midst of judgment, 
God is gracious and merciful. Aren't you glad for that today? And so why don't we just pause and commit this to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you today. We thank you uh, for your grace and your mercy. Lord God, you extend that to us even when you're judging us, Lord God. Even when you're disciplining us as your followers, you still extend grace and mercy to us. And we're so grateful for that today. Lord, I pray that we would live into that knowledge about who you are and how you work. Lord, I pray that you would just pour out your Holy Spirit upon this place today, that you would touch each heart and mind, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you want us to do, what you want us to learn, how you want us to be transformed by your word. Lord, your word is powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword that cuts even to the marrow. And I pray that your word would do that work in our hearts today. So, Lord, we commit it to you, and we just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We just have three points today. The first one is review, and it's verses 1 to 3. Look at those with me if you would. This is what God's Word says. Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here, and when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people... Uh, that, yeah, tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favor, favorably disposed toward the people, and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So we see this little bit of a review. The Lord first assures Moses that there would be just one more plague on Pharaoh and Egypt. If you remember... God keeps telling Moses and Aaron to go back to Pharaoh, even though Pharaoh is like, nope, nope, nope. Every time either his heart is hardened by itself or God hardens his heart because God had to complete this whole plan that he had lined out. And so, you know, I'm sure Moses probably got tired too. He's like, you want me to go back again? And so here he's just reassuring Moses. He said, just one more plague. This is it, and then you're going to be set free. You won't have to go back and talk to Pharaoh again. And then the Lord reviewed for Moses what he had said previously concerning the Israelites leaving Egypt. First, we see it in Exodus chapter 3, verses 19 to 22, when Moses is at the burning bush. If you remember that, here's the words from, that, uh, from those verses. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed toward this people, so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman uh, living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians. So God told Moses about this all the way back at the burning bush there in the wilderness. And then when he goes back to Midian, which is where uh, he was living at the time um, with his father-in-law, with his wife, and in Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 to 23, we read these words. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let them go, to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. Keep Keep that in mind. That's what's coming up here in just a moment. But even when 
uh, Moses goes from the burning bush back to Midian and then all the way over to Egypt. We see this in Exodus chapter 7, verses 3 to 5. This is when Moses is, Moses is in Egypt. Listen to these words. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and, and though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. So you see, God was just reviewing for Moses all that he had already told him. And then in verse 3, we see this parenthetical note that Moses adds. Moses was writing after the fact, right? The book of Exodus, he's writing after they had already been released from Egypt and had been into the promised land or perhaps in the wilderness. And he explains what the Lord did after the final plague. Moses didn't create suspense for us. He didn't leave us hanging with a cliffhanger, but he explained the power of God. He said, this is what happened. Like, we were, you know, we, we had a favorable disp- disposition with the Egyptians, and they, like, gave us a whole bunch of silver and gold and clothing, right? And so we come to our first principle today that's, that's this. God is able to make those who persecute us look on us with favor. Did you ever think about that before? That God is able to make those who persecute us look on us with favor. If we turn all the way back into the New Testament, to the book of Acts, chapter 5, uh, beginning at verse 29, we read these words. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of, those, of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, and that's the Pharisees and the spiritual leaders, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed them, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, uh, uh, Theodos appeared claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourself fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. You see, for the, the, the apostles here, we see that God was able to make uh, you know, the Sanhedrin favorable to them. Those that were persecuting them, Right? Instead of killing them, which is what they wanted to do, they just flogged them and sent them away and told them not to preach in the name of Jesus anymore. 
You know, when I worked in the secular business world, I experienced God's power to, at work to make those who persecute me, persecuted me because of my faith look at me with favor. It happened time and time again. They just knew that there was something different. And it wasn't because I was sharing the gospel. I wasn't like taking my Bible out and thumping them with it. It was just the way that I lived my life. It was because of the things I wasn't doing that they knew that there was something different. And so sometimes I would experience persecution because of that. You know, they wanted to tear me down because they didn't feel good about themselves. And in one particular situation, I told uh, the one lady, it, if it makes you feel better to tear me down, then go ahead. It doesn't bother me. And that stopped it. She never did that again. And so have you experienced that in your own life? Where God has just kind of protected you as you've been faithful to him. You know, we can trust God and his power to transform the thoughts and actions of those who persecute us. And so maybe you're ready to take this first next step today, and that's just to trust in God's awesome power to make, and you fill in the blank. Maybe it's a person, maybe it's a group. Look on me with favor. Who is that in your life today? That's what God did for the Israelites and for Moses. You know, they plundered, or they were going to plunder the Egyptians when they were leaving Egypt. And Moses was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and the people. Now, while Pharaoh was struggling to see God's hand at work through Moses, Pharaoh's officials and the people of Egypt recognized it right away. We see that multiple times. It first comes when in the... Uh, the plague of gnats in Exodus chapter 8, verse 19, it says this, the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Remember, they could not duplicate this particular plague. When the gnats came, they couldn't duplicate it like they had done with the previous ones. And so they're like, this, this is the finger of God. So his officials recognize it. Then in the plague of hail, in Exodus chapter 9, verse 20, we read these words. Those officials of Pharaoh who feared the Lord, the word of the Lord, hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside. Moses had told them ahead of time what the Lord had said. The Lord said, I'm going to bring this hailstorm. It's going to be like no hailstorm you've ever experienced. It'll be unprecedented. And, and, and it's going to come only against Egypt and against your livestock and your slaves in the field. And he tells them, if you don't want your livestock and your slaves killed, bring them inside. And so we see here that those officials that feared the word of the Lord brought their slaves and their livestock inside. But there were others that didn't. Then in the plague of the locusts, we see in Exodus chapter 10, verse 7, these words, Pharaoh's officials said to him, How long will this man be a snare to us? Let the people go so that they may worship the Lord their God. Do you not yet realize that Egypt is ruined? Now, the locusts were coming after the hail, right? The hail destroyed almost everything. There were a couple of trees that survived. There were a couple of plants that hadn't come up yet that were now coming up, and the locusts were going to come and destroy all of that. They were going to wipe out all the food source there in Egypt. And so his officials and the people were like, just let them go. Can't you see that Egypt is ruined? It's done. And as we'll see in just a moment, Pharaoh's officials would bow down to Moses. Martin in his commentary says this, Moses himself was afforded a lofty status among the Egyptians, not because of anything he had done, but because his God granted him special favor and chose to work mighty signs through him. We have to keep that in mind. Moses didn't rise up to this uh, status on his own. He wouldn't have been able to do it. Remember, 
think way back at the beginning when he's at the burning bush and he says to God, I, I just stutter. I, I can't speak well. Why would you even send me? This is the power of God that's raising Moses up in this status in the eyes of the Egyptians. Same is true for us. We don't really have any status of our own. We can't become great on our own. It's only what God does in and through us by his power and his might. And so the parenthetical note uh, shared the positive outcome of the final plague. The Egyptians were going to be set free. They were going to plunder the Egyptians. The Israelites are going to be set free. i got to get that right. Not the Egyptians. Israelites are going to be set free, and they're going to plunder the Egyptians. And so the review is finished, and it's time to return to the narrative, where we see this report of what's about to come. Uh, Would you look at verses 4 to 8 with me, if you would? So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die, from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the slave girl who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will, be a loud, there will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any man or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. So most scholars agree that what we see in Exodus chapter 11, verses 4 to 8, actually happens between Exodus chapter 10, verse 26, and Exodus chapter 10, verse 27. So if you have your Bibles, look back there. This is what it says. So um, they're talking about the plague of darkness. In verse 26, it says, Our livestock, uh, too, must go with us. Not a hoof is to be left behind. We have to use some of them in worshiping the Lord our God. And until we get there, we will not know uh, what uh, we are to use to worship the Lord. Then Moses is still in the presence of Pharaoh there. And he shares this other aspect before you see uh, verse 27, which says, But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. And then Moses, or Pharaoh tells Moses to get out of my sight. So this is all kind of happening while he's still in front of Pharaoh. I like what N says in his commentary. It's as if, while leaving, Moses turns to Pharaoh and says, Oh yes, one more thing before I go. So that, that's basically what he's trying to do here. It also appears that the last part of, of Exodus chapter 11, verse 8, happens right after Exodus chapter 10, verse 29. So Pharaoh says, I don't want to see your face again. Get out of here. And uh, Moses is hot-tempered about it. He gets upset, and he leaves. So Moses gave Pharaoh the details about the last plague as the Lord had told him. These are the Lord's words. In verses 4 and 5, we see the actual plague. The Lord was going to go throughout Egypt about midnight. Every firstborn in Egypt would die without exception. It would affect every family from the greatest to the least, and it would include the firstborn cattle too. So this was cattle were important for the Egyptians. Then in verse 6, we see the reaction to the plague. There would be loud wailing throughout Egypt. The Hebrew word for wailing is the same Hebrew word used of the Israelites in Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 and 9. Here's those verses. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. 
And then in Exodus chapter 3, verse 9, it says this, And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So those two uh, Hebrew words for crying out and cry are the exact same Hebrew word that's used for this loud wailing throughout Egypt. <clears throat> and the wailing would be worse than they had ever experienced before or would experience in the future. There was going to be incredible heartache on the side of the Egyptians. And then in verse 7, we see the exception to the plague. The Israelites would be exempt from this plague. That's what, meant, that's what is meant by the phrase, not a dog will bark. And in fact, in Stewart's commentary, he says this, the actual meaning of the Hebrew is, but among the Israelites, not a dog will stick out its tongue at any man or animal to say that not even a dog would stick out its tongue at an Israelite was a simple, graphically idiomatic way of saying that the Israelite humans and cattle would simply see no harm whatever for, from the 10th plague. So it's just kind of a, a, a graphic way of saying it. You know, this dog's not going to stick out his tongue. Another uh, way to define it is that a dog wouldn't sharpen his tongue. That's a little harder to understand. But it's like the sticking out of his tongue, so it's like, dog's not even going to make any noise because they're all going to be safe. And then we see the, in verse 8 the response to the plague. Now we see that Moses is talking to Pharaoh and his officials that are standing beside him. Pharaoh's officials would come down from the platform where Pharaoh's throne was and bow down before Moses. They would encourage Moses and the Israelites to leave Egypt. And then we see that Moses just left the presence of Pharaoh. How does all this apply to us today? Well, our second principle helps us with that. We see that God is gracious and merciful. We see his grace and mercy in several aspects within this narrative. One is the timing of the death of the firstborn at midnight. Stuart continues in his commentary and he says, Midnight in the sense of the concept in the ancient world was the deepest, darkest time of night. The point during the night when the most people were likely to be asleep since people tended to retire to bed at dusk. And the time of greatest vulnerability and defenselessness. Thinking of the events of the plague from the point of view of the mercies of God, causing the death of so many Egyptians was indeed a severe punishment, but allowing them to die quietly in their sleep was an act of grace. Isn't that amazing? Like, instead of just, you know, in the middle of the day, they're out doing their jobs or whatever, and they just all fall over. No, it's like in the quietness of the deepest, darkest part of the night, in God's grace and mercy, this death angel comes. And just whisks them away. That's, that's incredible. I just love the idea that God graciously took all the firstborn of Egypt while they quietly slept. So it goes back to our big idea today that even in the midst of judgment, God is gracious and merciful. Aren't you glad? He loved the Egyptian people even though they had rebelled against him. And we see God's love and justice working together perfectly through his grace and mercy. Another is the fact that God did not completely destroy all the Egyptians. He certainly had the power and the right to do that. In Exodus chapter 9, verse 15, we see these words, For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. So the Lord had already told Pharaoh, he's like, I have the power to do it. But in, in the midst of this judgment, God was being gracious and merciful. 
Because why, were, why was he bringing all these plagues? He was bringing these plagues so that the Egyptians would recognize that the Lord is God. He wanted them to understand that. When we think about the definition of grace, it's getting something that we don't deserve. And then if we think about the definition of mercy, it's not getting what we do deserve. And so the Egyptians deserved to be wiped off the earth because of their rebellion against God and their oppression of his people, but God only required the lives of the firstborn children and cattle. So even in the midst of judgment, God is gracious and merciful. And God is gracious and merciful to us as well. We are all born into sin, meaning that we are in rebellion against God from our birth. We see that in Romans 3.23 because it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We don't reach the perfection of God because of this sin in our lives. And that sin entered the world because of Adam and Eve, the very first sin. They were in rebellion against God. They chose to go their own way. And we see God's grace and mercy in the fact that what we earn or deserve for our sin is to be separated from God for all of eternity. That's the first part of Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. That's not a physical death, it's a spiritual death. It's a separation from God. But he offers us the gift of eternal life through his son Jesus. That's the second part of Romans 6.23. But the gift of God is salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then we experience God's love for us through the fact that he sent Jesus to die for us while we were still in rebellion against him. We see that in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Aren't you glad for that? From the time we were born, we were living in sin, and we deserve to be separated from God, but God's love is like no other love that we can ever experience. And he says, I loved you so much that I sent Jesus before you were even born to die on the cross to take your punishment for sin. And so maybe you're ready to take the second next step today, and that's to experience God's grace and mercy by accepting his gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. That's the greatest decision you could ever make. Because then you have the Holy Spirit that will live within you, that will guide and direct you each day, that will give you wisdom to understand God's word. And so through the 10th plague, we see the grace and mercy of God, but we also see his justice. That's our third principle today. God is just. Many people ask if God's punishment was just because Pharaoh was the one whose heart was hardened and not necessarily his people. But that belief assumes that we know the heart of the Egyptians, which we don't. Only God knows the heart of man or woman. We don't. So let me read uh, just a couple of quotes to you, because I couldn't have said it any better. That's why I'm just quoting uh, several uh, commentators today. N says this, We must remember that the firstborn of the womb belongs to God. It is, it is, by, it is his by right, and he may do with it as he pleases. The destroyer, which is the tenth plague, was not a random type of punishment. It was directed against the Egyptian firstborn. This is significant. Not only was the tenth plague a payback for Pharaoh's decree to kill the Israelite children in chapter 1, but it was God's, God's exercising his divine right over the firstborn. Then McKay 
uh, and their commentary says this, What the question fails to bring out is the right of God to bring judgment upon any and all who have rebelled against him. He may judge sinners at any moment by any means he considers appropriate. Overthrowing cities such as Sodom and Gomorrah, as we saw in Genesis 18 and 19, or annihilating the inhabitants of Jericho by an invading army, which is we see in Joshua chapter 6. Stuart says this, God does, not, uh, God does a great many things that remain beyond human understanding because human intellect is far too limited to allow for appreciation of the entire complexity of God's overall eternal plan for his universe and each individual in it. Like God's doing stuff that we can't comprehend. And then finally, <clears throat> Warren Wearsby says this, <clears throat> Compensation is a fundamental law of life, and God isn't unjust in permitting this law to operate in the world. Pharaoh drowned the Jewish babies, so God drowned Pharaoh's army in Exodus chapter 14, verses 26 to 31. Jacob lied to his father Isaac in Genesis 17, and years later, Jacob's sons lied to him in Genesis 37. David committed adultery and had the woman's husband murdered, and David's daughter was raped and two of his sons were murdered. Haman built a gallows in which to hang Mordecai, but it was Haman who was hanged there instead. Galatians 6, 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. As to the justice of this tenth plague, who can pass judgment on the acts of the Lord when, as Psalms 18, or 89, 14 says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne? And then Genesis 18.25 says this, Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The answer to those two last two questions is yes. He will do what's right. And righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. And so it's arrogant of us as finite human beings to think that we know better than an infinite holy God. We have to humble ourselves by ridding our hearts and minds of pride and submit to Him as Almighty God. So sometimes we want to blame God for, uh, for not being fair or just. How many of us are willing to admit that we've thought that we know better than God about our job, about our relationships, about our finances, about the physical or spiritual healing of a family member or friend? about children and women who are exploited and hurt, about the political system and our government officials, about the leadership and direction of our church. Maybe some of us have questioned whether God's punishment of us has been just or fair. But remember our big, big idea that even in the midst of judgments, God is gracious and merciful. We can trust that God is fair and just even if we don't understand because that is his character. That's who he is. Maybe you're ready to take this third next step today, and that's just to acknowledge that God is just and fair and how he deals with humanity. We also see in this section of the narrative a principle that we have already talked about, and it takes us back to our first principle, that God is able to make those who persecute us look on us with favor. Moses told Pharaoh that his officials would come and bow down before him and plead with him to leave with all the Israelites in tow. And we know from verses 2 and 3 that the Israelites would plunder the Egyptians when they left. And so the Lord's announcement 
is finished, and we see his final reminder in verses 9 and 10. Look at those verses with me, if you would. The Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh would refuse to listen to you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. So most translations simply say that the Lord said instead of had said. And whether the Lord told Moses presently or not, it is something that the Lord had said before. In Exodus chapter 4, verses 21 to 23, we've read it several times this morning. The Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say, to the, then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. And then in Exodus chapter 3, verses 19 to 22, again, we have repeated these this morning several times, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him, so I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And then let me just read for you Exodus chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan where they lived as aliens. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. So you see, the Lord was just reminding uh, Moses again what he had already told him. And he had accomplished this throughout the plague accounts that we have already seen. How does this apply to us? Our fourth principle is this. God's desire is for his people to come to him without experiencing great calamities. That's his greatest desire. You know, the Egyptians, the greater purpose behind every plague the Egyptians experienced was so that they would recognize that the Lord is God. He wanted the Egyptians to believe in him and serve him instead of the vast number of gods and goddesses they were currently worshiping. But how about us? The great purpose behind every hardship we face is so we will recognize that the Lord is God. He wants us to recognize who He is. He wants us to believe in Him and serve Him instead of the idols that we currently worship. Are you continuing to rebel against the Lord? How many calamities will you need to experience before you recognize that the Lord is God? He created you and He loves you. He wants you to be in a personal relationship with His Son, Jesus. Our fifth principle is this, that God wants us to turn from our wicked ways and live. McKay says this, judgment is not the first option in God's dealings with mankind. Some of you might feel that way today, but that's not the truth. Ezekiel chapter 33 verse 11 says this, Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn! 
Turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? And in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, we read these words. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's the heart of God. He doesn't find pleasure in punishing the wicked. But he wants you to understand who he is and he wants you to give your life to, to him. And this fourth next step might be for you today and that's to turn from my wicked ways and repent of my sins. So as we just review a little bit, are you ready to trust in God's awesome power to make those who are persecuting you look on you with favor? Maybe you're ready to experience God's grace and mercy by accepting his gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. Maybe you're ready to acknowledge that God is just and fair in how he deals with you. Or maybe you're ready to turn from your wicked ways and repent of your sins. As a body of believers, we can trust in God's awesome power to make those who are persecuting us look on us with favor. And while we may not experience much of it right now, know that it's coming. It's coming. And then we, as a body, can acknowledge that God is just and fair in how he deals with us. I want to close with this illustration today. The historian Paul Vane calls himself an unbeliever, and yet he extols the message of human dignity that we find in the sacrificial love and death of Jesus. Vane writes, In the gospel, a person's life suddenly acquired an eternal significance within a cosmic plan, something that no philosophy or paganism could confer. The pagan gods lived for themselves, in contrast, Christ, the man-God, sacrificed himself for his people. Christianity owed its success to a collective invention of genius, namely the infinite mercy of God, uh, of a God passionate about the fate of the human race, indeed about the fate of each and every individual soul, including mine and yours, and not just those of the kingdoms, empires, and the human race in general. So you see, we have this God who passionately is concerned about us and extends his grace and mercy to us that even in the midst of judgment we can experience that grace and mercy and so i hope that you're encouraged and strengthened today i hope that you'll take those steps that we talked about today to acknowledge who he is to understand and trust in his power uh, to help you to find favor in the eyes of those who persecute you and to give your life to him completely that would be the, the greatest decision ever. And so as the worship team comes to lead us in a closing song, as the ushers prepare to take up the tithes and offerings and the communication cards, would you just bow your heads with me? Lord, we come to you. Oh, gracious and merciful God, we stand in all of who you are and what you do in our lives. Lord, we thank you for the fact that you punish those that are in rebellion against you. And yet, in the midst of that, you extend grace and mercy. Lord, we thank you that when you discipline us as your followers, that you still extend grace and mercy to us. Lord, would we just live in that truth today? We just commit ourselves to you. Thank you for what you want to accomplish through your word. 
And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.